little bit about my ministry. And if you want to go ahead and show the first slide, that didn't come up very good, but that is a picture of St. Basil's in Moscow in Red Square. I did begin uh, going over in 1994. I was asked to go over and represent Walk Through the Bible internationally, and I went over reluctantly. I didn't believe in the ministry that was going on over there at the very beginning. It was different from what I had envisioned and hoped for, but when I went over there, I was pleasantly surprised, if you go to the next slide, and I met, well, I represent a Walk Through the Bible. Next slide after that. Uh, can't see these pictures very well. Boy, the one in the middle is the one I really wanted to show off. And it looks like there's just a black space there, but there are three individuals, a baby and a mom and a dad. At any rate, if we go to the f- top left-hand corner, first fruits were this, this young lady named Irina. Uh, I met her down in Krasnodar. And uh, she had tons of questions about the gospel, I remember, on the first day. And I just started answering questions as briefly as I could. I didn't want to answer too completely because I wanted her to keep asking questions that would allow me to lead her to the gospel. Many times when you share the gospel, you give so much information out that people are either confused, don't understand, they don't know how to ask the right question, and you leave them behind. So I would just give short one or two sentence answers to her, and that would always lead to another question. And after an hour and a half, she said, you know what, I think I have enough to think about. And she thought for the five days about what it meant to be a Christian. And as I was leaving Krasnodar to go on to the next place of ministry, she said, I I asked one question. I said, is there anything that I can answer one last time before I leave? And she said, yes, I've been doing a lot of thought for the last five days. And she said, I would like to uh, know God. Could you please show me how I could know God? And so I went over the gospel one more time and didn't pray a prayer of acceptance because nobody asked God into their heart. God calls a person and enlightens them with truth. And so I helped her to just appreciate with thanksgiving the work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, she was the beginning of the transformation of my heart that led to many more trips going back into Eastern Europe. If we go to the next slide. Uh, My next uh, foray into um, uh, Eastern Europe came in 1996. I had done being an evangelist. I, after that first trip, I went back three more times in two years. And then what I was doing, the program ended. But I wanted to continue on. And so I was invited to be a guest uh, teacher at one of the newly founded Bible colleges in Moscow. And so I went up to Moscow, and these are just a few of the classes that I've taught, not only in Moscow, but eventually into Minsk. But I taught church history the very first time. And again, I went reluctantly because I thought, you know, I'm not certain about this Bible college and I'm not certain that I want to be attached to it. And when I got over there, I saw a huge need because they were asking Americans to come over and teach in this uh, Bible college that did not believe that the Bible was the full authoritative word of God. And I thought, you know, the easy way out is not to go back. Or I could try and drive those guys out and become a fixture at the Bible college myself and help to cement in Moscow and in the Eastern European mindset that the Bible is authoritative and does contain the full counsel of God that we need to understand. And so through the next several years, I uh, continued going over, and sure enough, those who didn't have an authoritative position on God's Word, they no longer came back, and that allowed me to present uh, uh, the message of God's Word to the people. I had one specialized course that was called Eastern Orthodox or Russian and Eastern Orthodox Church History and Theology. 
And basically what I was teaching was how to understand the scriptures and be able to share the gospel to an orthodox mindset so that people could come to a true knowledge of the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I was making one trip a year until 1997, as Will mentioned, and that's when I incorporated Encouragement International as a 501c3 nonprofit tax-exempt corporation. I did that because my cousin, who went with me on the very first trip in 1994, said, Hal, if we're going to support you in ministry, I want a tax deduction, so I want you to form a uh, nonprofit. And I took three years to think and pray about that, but finally in 97, uh, it came to uh, uh, reality. Let's go on to the next one. During my time in teaching uh, in these Bible colleges, I had the privilege of teaching international students. It's hard to believe, and it's very strange to see a black man in Moscow. But in the, uh, in the Moscow Bible College, there were a couple of, uh, well, there was one young man, and you can't see him over here on the left, whose name was Humphrey, who came from Africa to study uh, Marxism and Leninism at Moscow State University. And during that time, he heard the gospel and came to the Bible College where I was teaching. And so I had the privilege of teaching him more completely an understanding of God's Word and the Gospel through God's Word. If you come down here to the uh, lower right, this guy is named Prince Henry. That's because he's a prince in Nigeria. And he was uh, scouting the internet looking for a Christian college that he could afford to attend. And he came across a Bible college in Minsk, Belarus, where I was teaching. And he enrolled in that college. And so he spent two years of his life in Belarus trying to learn the Bible because that was the only affordable college education that he could get. The guy in the middle is more interesting to me, though. His name is Makmazia. He comes from one of the Stans. I can't remember if it's Kurdistan, Tajikistan, uh, you know, one of those around in that area. But he comes from a very Muslim area. And when he came into uh, Moscow to go to the Bible college, I just fell in love with the guy's story because his father was the local imam. That means he was the top religious leader in the community, highly respected. And when Makmazia came to Christ, there was a lot of death threats to him. Now his dad, to his credit, stood behind him, but he had to escape for his life, and he escaped into um, uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow area, and he found the Bible College, and they invited him to come down, and so I had the privilege of, of teaching him and training him, but I'll never forget his words, uh, and my course was one of the last that he took. He said, I'm, I said, where are you going after you graduate? He says, I'm going back home. And I said, well, you're living under a death threat. I mean, if you go back there, they've already tried to kill you. You're, they're probably going to kill you when you head back into that city. He says, well, my, my life is lost in Christ right now. And so if I go back there and Christ wants to take me, that, that's all for the glory of God. But the gospel needs to go back to my people. Now, it's interesting that he'd been able to sneak back during one Christmas break and share the gospel with his parents, his mom and his dad. And they were not converting to Christianity, but they were supportive of who he is or who he was and uh, definitely uh, uh, not against him. So I wonder what he's doing right now because it was right around 2007 or 2006 that I saw him for the last time before he headed back into uh, one of these Muslim nations. Let's move on to the next slide. One of the things that we do is go over in the summertime in uh, STM, short-term mission trips. And uh, Will was one of those. I've been doing this for about 12 years, 13 years, taking teams over to assist men that I have trained in summer ministry. And so we go over there and we work with youth primarily. Now I'm working with a church over in uh, Kiev, 
Ukraine, a church called Almaz. I've been with them for three years. They were a seeker-sensitive church that is transitioning into an expositional type of ministry, and I like that kind of transformation. Those are the people that I focus on, those who have a low estimation of God's Word and want to obtain a higher estimation of God's Word. And so in working with this church over the last three years, we've been able to work on evangelism and to help their people become more evangelistically minded, understanding that their role is just to share the gospel, not to lead somebody to Christ or cause somebody to believe, but to give enough information that the Holy Spirit can transform the thinking of the individual and the heart of the individual into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And by the way, uh, I'm leaving on July 5th, and I'll be gone for 10 days in July to minister to this church. I need some more volunteers to go with me. It's not too late to head over there. If you have any interest in serving alongside me, we've got five teams that we're trying to fill this year. One is a construction team that's going to be working on a room addition at an orphanage. Another is an orphanage team that needs to reach out not only to love the orphans, but to share the gospel with the, uh, uh, the orphanage workers, as well as to help train Almaz on how to be Sunday school teachers in their own church, but through a VBS that we're going to conduct with believing and non-believing kids in a summer camp that involves the orphanage. And then in addition to that, I've got two evangelistic teams, one that is going to be doing street evangelism in the afternoon after we train in the morning, the Almaz people, how to go out and share their faith. And then there's another evangelistic team that is going to be working with a, a soccer camp that we found very successful the last couple of years, trying to pull the youth in through athletics, but putting the gospel into them uh, during the break. And the last team that I want to work on is a Fundamentals of the Faith camp that uh, will involve bringing those who come to Christ into a fuller understanding of the basics of Christianity. So if you would have any interest in learning about how to be a part of that team, I would love to talk to you before I leave today. Let's go to the next uh, slide. We also do conferences. And I don't know if you could see uh, the guy in the middle over there, all you UCLA guys or any of you GOCers. Uh, those are, that's Rick Holland. He and I were asked last fall to go over and conduct a conference, a pastor's conference in Minsk, Belarus. He was the main plenary speaker. I was somebody who was teaching Eastern Orthodoxy uh, to the pastors on how to uh, share the gospel more effectively with the, uh, the uh, uh, Orthodox people. And so the president of the Baptist Union now, who invited Rick and I over, has asked me to come over more frequently and to teach more of his pastors on how to share the gospel with uh, the Orthodox in the community. But we do various conferences in Encouragement International. I was able to take my wife last fall. We did a parenting conference uh, among the Eastern European, Eastern European people, not only uh, in cities like Prague and in Paris, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute, but also over in Israel. And by the way, um, the ministry has expanded. It used to focus on Eastern Europe. It used to be involved in... Uh, Russia and Belarus and Moldova and Ukraine, and it still is. But we've found a fertile, rich field in Western Europe. There are seven and a half million Russian-speaking emigrants who have fled the former Soviet Union, who are now living in Western Europe, but they have no church, they haven't heard the gospel, and nobody's reaching out to them. I have uh, uh, taken on another American. He's a church planner. We're working with another Eastern European man over there. And so we're sending and we're trying to plant churches in Western Europe, but only among Russian-speaking individuals. Seven and a half million, that's quite a mission field that is just kind of lost. Because when they leave the former Soviet Union, 
They move into the society, but they never adapt to the society. They still have their own clique, their Russian-speaking clique. And so what we're doing is finding these communities, like 500,000 in Paris, and there's 400,000 in Lisbon, and in Naples there's 600,000 that have emigrated out, all throughout Western Europe that nobody is targeting right now. We're sending men in to be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people, get them integrated into a national church, so that when the first generation dies off and hasn't assimilated into the culture, the second generation, which has assimilated into the culture, is in the church, and they become the new evangelists. I don't know if you've ever been to Western Europe, but Western European Christians are not very evangelistically minded. They worship God, but they don't go out and share their faith that often. An Eastern European, though, whether it's in Eastern Europe or in Western Europe, is very excited about sharing this faith that he's had because he's been locked away from the gospel for 70 to 80 years. And now he has the opportunity to share. All right, let's go to the final slide. The influence is, yes, this is that Western European ministry among Slavic speakers or Russian speakers uh, that I was communicating about. If we look at the top corner, that's, uh, or the top, that is uh, the Parisian pastor over on the right side. If we look at the guy over here on the top right, that's the, uh, the Russian speaker in Stockholm. By the way, Stockholm is a very ethnic city. There are 25, 25% of the people are uh, not uh, Swedish. They are from different parts of the world. So it's quite a fertile uh, evangelistic ground. Come down here in the left, that's a, 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 an Israeli pastor that I'm good friends with. And then we, in bottom center, we have uh, Vitaly, who is one of my first students that I ever taught, who is now high up in the um, Baptist Union in Moscow. And then over in the left, in a picture that you can't see, that's the Lisbon pastor that I'm going to be uh, working with. And you can go on to the next one. I think that's pretty much it. Nope. One of the things that we do, this is, I think, the last one. I think there was only six pictures. One of the things that we've been able to do over the last seven or eight years is to be able to pull pastors that I have had some kind of influence in their lives over here to the United States for the first week in March. It's a thing called Shepherd's Conference at Grace Community Church. It's an opportunity for them to learn principles of expository teaching and preaching and to take what they see and begin to incorporate it back into their own ministry uh, style back in Eastern Europe. So this last year, we were able to bring 13. The previous year, we were able to bring 13, but it all started about seven or eight years ago with one man who was so excited by the conference that he went home and told one other man in Belarus. And this other man, when he came the following year, was so excited that he, who was hooked into the Baptist Union very well, started asking me to invite several men. Now, we not only pull out of the Belarusian uh, country, but uh, Ukraine and Moldova and uh, any other uh, Russian speaker in Eastern or Western Europe who has an interest in learning how to be a more effective minister by focusing upon the teaching of God's Word. All right, let's go ahead and uh, shut that down now because I want to get into my message today. And here's the transition from the, um, the ministry that I am able to conduct. 19 years I've been working in, uh, with Encouragement International. It's during that time that I have uh, grown from one minister, which was me, and two board members to two full-time pastors here in the United States and four board members. And we're going to be adding another two men to help me in the work overseas. We've gone from working in one country to working in uh, uh, several countries. We have gone from not supporting any man, men to supporting 10 men in these countries. But the biggest challenge that I face when I go overseas 
is having people rest in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I want you to look at Matthew 5, 6 very quickly because here's a verse that I think, if you're like me, you've misunderstood in many ways. It's in the middle of the Beatitudes, and it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For many years, I looked at that verse and I said, yeah, you know, I hunger and thirst for my own personal righteousness and I'm striving for my own sanctification. I'm striving to add righteousness into the way that I live. But when you think that way, you're missing the point of what Jesus is trying to teach. Because when you look at the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 3 and going all the way through verse 12, you're going to see that the focus really isn't upon you. It's upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I would love to do sometime is to take a church through the Beatitudes and show you how the gospel is presented verse by verse. But when you get here to Matthew 5, 6, when we look at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The satisfaction is not in your own righteousness. The satisfaction has to be in the righteousness that you get from Jesus Christ. So how do we get that righteousness from Jesus Christ? Well, of course, the answer is from the gospel. But the challenge that I've had over the years, not only in Eastern Europe, but I'm, I'm seeing that even more in the United States, is that people do not understand justification. Eastern Orthodox people deny the biblical definition of justification. Their 1,000-year-old history in Slavic countries, that is the Orthodox 1,000-year history in Slavic countries, has influenced the culture. And the culture has influenced the Baptist or the evangelicals. And the Baptists have adopted a non-biblical understanding of justification. What do you think of when you hear the word justification or being justified in Christ? Many people think about being made righteous. If you think and define justification as being made righteous, you have a non-biblical definition of justification. Because justification means to be declared righteous. More importantly than asking you what it means to be justified is to ask the question, what are you practicing when it comes to justification? Are you making yourself righteous or are you resting in the righteousness, the declared righteousness that comes through confidence in the gospel? Today we want to understand the benefits of being justified. And not only understand the benefits, but more importantly, appreciate what it means to be declared righteous by God. We will use what I believe is the most important biblical passage not fully understood. Paul's explanation of justification that's found in Romans chapter 5. And when we've completed our study, we should appreciate better our justification. This appreciation f should fuel the way that we think and the way we live. And notice how I said this, because it's important to see that we have to focus on the mind first and then on the way we apply it. Most people would say uh, it will fuel a way to live and think, but that's focusing upon our effort rather than God's work. I think it's more important for us to get a proper mindset, not worry about the lifestyle, because the lifestyle is going to follow the way we think. If Christianity is an internally based religion, it means that we have to be transformed from the inside. And part of the inside is looking at the mind or having the mind transformed to think in a different way because when you think differently, then you will live differently. And the basis or the key way of transforming our way of thinking 
is to think about what it means to be justified. To accomplish my goal this morning, though, we need to define two terms. And these two terms are very important. They are listed in the passage. The first one is justification. And the second word is exaltation. Now, I want you to be very clear in the distinction of exaltation and a word that you may have thought that I said, which is exaltation. There's a difference between exaltation with an A and exaltation with a U. I'll explain that difference in just a minute. But let's begin by defining what it means to be justified or what the word justification means. If we go into the Greek, we see the word dikaiao, which means declared righteous or to be declared righteous. This is a Greek legal term. You have to have the setting in mind to understand what it means to be justified in Christ. We have to look at a courtroom. We have to see a judge. We have to see a prosecutor. And we have to see you on trial. The judge is going to render a decision after the trial. And when we go into this courtroom setting, the prosecutor gets to go first. In this case, in a theological sense, in a religious sense, that prosecutor is going to be Satan. And he steps up and he says, you know what, this Hal Hayes that is on trial over here, he's a sinner. And he says, I can prove my point. And he starts when I was just born into this world. And he indicates the selfishness that was exhibited in me as a baby. And it progressed on as I grew up. And all he does is list all of the sins that I've committed during my lifetime. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the litany of of uh, charges against me, I'm going, man, I am guilty. I am guilty. There's no hope for me. I'm listening to uh, all the negative things that are coming out of his mouth. He is not telling any lies at this point. He doesn't have to because all he's done in observing my life is to tell the truth about how much of a sinner I am standing before the judge. And you've got to be sweating at that point. You've got to be saying, you know what? There's no hope. But when he gets done after four or five days of testimony, showing how sinful I am, that's when my advocate, my defender is going to stand up. And who is my advocate and who is my defender at this point? None other than Jesus Christ. And when he stands up, it's a very short trial because all he has to do is say, you know what? Hal is guilty as charged of everything that Satan, who has taken days to uh, uh, give the list of sins, he is guilty as charged, but judge... He is not guilty based upon what I have done on the cross and Hal's confidence in what has happened 2,000 years ago when I substituted myself in his place to take the wrath that he deserved. And then I'm waiting to hear the verdict of the judge. And what is the verdict of the judge going to be because of the faith that I have placed in the work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago? It's not not guilty. It is I declare him to be righteous. Not because I am a righteous person, not because eventually I began to live a righteous life, not because I'm being made righteous in this life. That doesn't happen. I'm declared righteous based solely upon the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers me and upon which the Father looks and sees me. He sees me through a shade of red. And because he sees me through that shade of red, he declares me righteous. Again, not because of what I've done but because what Jesus did in my place, taking the punishment, the wrath that I deserve for all the wrongdoing that I have done. I rest in that confidence. I have no other hope for having God look at me any differently. 
It's important to get that idea in the mind. As a matter of fact, whenever you see the word justification or justified now in the book of Romans or in the book of Galatians or anywhere in the New Testament, you've got to stop reading the word justification. You've got to look at it through a synonymous understanding or a synonymous term, which is declared righteous. When you do that, it's going to change the way that you think and the way you begin to live. I have been declared righteous by God through faith alone. Justification, just to say the word, is a good summary of the concept, but it does not cause you to think deeply about the salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I hardly get excited when I look at the word justification. But when I think of it in terms of being declared righteous by God through what Jesus did and my confidence in that 2,000 years ago, I get very excited. It's an important distinction. It's important to understand that it's an event, not a process. It's a declaration, not a performance upon which we do. As a matter of fact, it's so important to understand that Martin Luther said Christianity stands or falls on justification by faith alone. That focuses our salvation upon one concept, and that is justification. Calvin came along and he said justification by faith is the hinge on which all religion turns. Can there be any more important term for us to understand in Scripture than the word justification? I don't think so. Because once you understand justification, once you appreciate what's going on, you cease to work or try and earn your salvation. From the world's perspective, religion is man's performance to please and find favor with God. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox perspective is no different than the world's. Dare I say, even some evangelicals sitting among us today. And I must confess that for most of my early years in Christianity, I didn't appreciate or understand justification by faith alone, and I was still trying to find some favor from God in the way that I performed. But listen to what the Catholic perspective says about justification and how confusing it is, not only for the Roman Catholic, but I think for even some evangelicals. The Roman Catholic perspective on justification says, in the process of justification, the Council of Trent assigns the first and foremost important place to faith. Starting out good so far. But it goes on to say the next step is, to, uh, is a genuine sorrow for all sin with the resolution to begin a new life by receiving holy baptism. Do you hear the works involved in that statement? You're just beginning a process that is going to bring you through to the final accomplishment of justification or being declared righteous by God later on. And of course, they also add observing the commandments of God. They go on to say, and I've taken this right off of the Catholic website, the process of justification is then brought to a close by the baptism of water inasmuch as by the grace of this sacrament, the catechumen is freed from sin, that is original and personal, and its punishment and is made a child of God. It's a process from their way of thinking, not an event as taught by the Scriptures. But even more condemning, I think, is the final statement from the Catholic perspective. Considering merely the psychological analysis of the conversion of sinners as given by the Council of Trent, it is at once evident that faith alone, whether fiduciary or dogmatic, cannot justify man. What they have denied then 
is that justification is a result of faith alone as taught by Paul in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Even worse is the Eastern Orthodox. And these are the people that I focus upon. I have to confess that I haven't done much work with Roman Catholics overseas because the Slavic people are influenced by the Orthodox way of thinking. But here's a quote from one of their theologians. He said, Luther was wrong to limit justification to declared righteousness. Extrinsic justification and extrinsic means something obtained by someone else's action is spiritual fiction. That's a bold claim to say that the work of Jesus on the cross didn't accomplish anything for man. It began a process from their uh, understanding, but it didn't uh, give a conclusion at the moment for an individual. How hopeless is the situation if we are just beginning a process of becoming declared righteous by God? That means that we'd better live perfectly. We'd better live the right kind of life right now. And when we do, it takes away the glory of God. I'll get to that in just a minute. But the RCs, or the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, flaunt another gospel. And because of that, justification is not dependent upon faith alone, but only initiated by faith. They advocate a process leading to acceptance by God, and they don't uh, live in the declaration that results in acceptance by God. As a result, they live under the curse of Galatians 1, 8, and 9. And that's the great anathema statements that Paul issues twice. The second term, though, that we need to define that's very important so that we understand and appreciate what's going on in Romans chapter 5 is the word exaltation. Again, I say it's not exaltation with an A, it's exaltation. To exalt with an A is to lift up someone else or to elevate in dignity or in rank. Exaltation, though, with a U, means to leap vigorously, to rejoice in triumph. Over the last two weeks, the media has been exulting in an NBA player who has come out and announced with joy the sin that he loves to participate in. And those around him have been exulting in his exaltation. Do you see the difference between the two now? One is taking pride in who they are and what they have done and sharing that and being elevated in the eyes of others. The other, though, is allowing others to take what they know and bring it to the forefront and get excited about it. Exalting is former, and as a matter of fact, exalting, though, is a passionate expression. It's full of energy. Paul tells us in verses 2, 3, and 11 of chapter 5 in Romans that a proper understanding of justification is going to result in exaltation. You getting excited about your salvation. I mean, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hands right now, but how excited are you about your salvation? How excited are you about your justification? I don't live in exaltation as much as I should, and I dare say that you probably don't either. We need to look at Romans 5 more often, and we want to examine that today. Now that our minds are framed with the definitions of justification and exaltation, let's begin by looking at the first benefit of our justification, and that's found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Boy, I wish we had the time to go through just these two verses. There is a rich amount of doctrine that could get us excited about the work of God. But we want to just focus on being declared righteous and the results that bring about peace with God uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. We're not being made righteous. We're being declared righteous. And I'm going to keep referring to our declaration of righteous or being declared righteous throughout this message because we've got to change our mindset. Most of us think about being made righteous by the work of Christ. But I love a definition given by an old theologian, Louis Burkhoff, a man I had to study uh, at Talbot 30 years ago. And I found this description of a Christian in describing justification that I think summarizes who we are best. It says, we're nothing more than justified sinners. Now, when you think about that with the proper understanding of justification, we're nothing more than declared righteous sinners. It tells us who we are at the present moment. We're declared righteous, but we're not made righteous because we're still sinners. I am still a sinner. You're still a sinner. The problem with living in this world is that we will continue to be sinners until we die. We will live and struggle with the flesh during our entire existence. And as long as I have been a Christian, over 40 years at this point, I think it gets more discouraging year after year. Because as I look at God's Word, I see the discipline of my body, but I see the sin of my mind, my desires, and all that's going on on the inside. In fact, the more I read God's Word, the more I'm condemned, the more I feel less holy before a holy God. And if I focus upon myself, I feel lost without any hope. But it's the more that I look at justification, being declared righteous by the work of Christ in God, and my confidence in that very work, the more I appreciate who I am now because of who I am going to be in the future. And where is the great and ultimate liberation of this struggle that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 between the flesh and the spirit? It's going to be in glorification. It's going to be as best summed up in 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we will be like him. The struggle finally ends. Will I have lots of struggle during this life? Absolutely. Will I ever be free of the struggle in this life? No. If you're free from the struggle, I would urge you to get back into the word of God because it will not be long as you expose yourself to God's Word, that you'll feel uncomfortable about who you are in your desires, your motivations, and the way that you think. But then you should be quick to come to Romans 5. Because there it says, Therefore, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. How is this peace possible? Well, this is where we have to think about the promise that began in Genesis 3.15. The promise that God was going provide a God-man, an incarnate man, an incarnate God-man to be our Savior, to come into this world and to do what we couldn't do to substitute himself, to do something, to take something that we could not endure in order to give us something that we could not earn. We have to look at the incarnation of Jesus. We have to look at the life that he lived, his substitutionary death, ultimately his resurrection from the dead, and then his ascension into heaven. 
Now, I want you to notice one thing in the things that I've just listed. Notice the pronouns. Where is you in any of what I just described? It was all Jesus. It was his incarnation, his life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension. Everything that he did, his work that accomplishes the, the purpose of being declared righteous and receiving what we could not get on our own. Inserting yourself into the acquisition of justification is robbing God of his glory. And besides, verse 2 states that it's obtained, and that Greek word means to find access. We have found access by, uh, with uh, continuing results by putting our faith in the work of Jesus. The warning, I think, is given very clearly in Isaiah when you go back to uh, chapter 42, verse 8, and chapter 48, verse 11. God is very clear in both of these places that He doesn't like to share His glory with anyone. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He says, hey, who I am can't be taken on or shared by anyone else. And I'm going to guard that. And when you strive to take that, my glory away from me, then I'm going to be quick to react. And that is true, especially when it comes to the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on yourself in salvation is to rob God of his glory and to take the lampstand or to take his uh, influence away from your life. This is what has happened in Roman Catholicism. This is what's happened in Eastern Orthodoxy. They both started out well as continuations of the teaching of the apostles. And somewhere around the 4th or the 5th century, they lost it all because they began focusing upon their responses, upon their works, making the response to faith the work of faith. And when we do that, we're taking away from God and what He has done for us. By the way, we should be breathing a sigh of relief right now when it comes to thinking about the work of Christ. What? It's not our performance like the other world religions teach us. It's His performance and our confidence in His performance that results in being declared righteous in order to enter into the, God's presence. Such a, great, a, a gift in verse 2 is a, a gift of grace, and it's more than I can comprehend. In fact, I have to stand and I should be standing in awe of God. In fact, I should be exulting in His work. I should be, as I defined it earlier, vigorously rejoicing in what He has done. It should be moving in the heart to cause you to begin saying amen and hallelujah and even dancing in the aisles. Some of our more charismatic and Pentecostal friends are maybe not as wrong as we think that they are when they want to express their praise to God. We should be exulting on the inside. We should be looking at and listening and thinking about this, this wonderful declaration of righteousness that comes to us and we should be expressing it. Uh, not only in our outward actions, but in the way that we live our life. Being declared righteous results in being at peace with God. And that's what Paul is laying a foundation for in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If we think we are being made righteous, we are still at war with God, and we are not at peace as we are described as being in verse 1. So the first benefit of being declared righteous is we are at peace with God. We're no longer his enemy. He accepts us in Christ's righteousness and not our own. But there's a second benefit. 
And that's found in verses 3 through 8. <coughs> it results in exalting or exalting results in promoting patience in suffering. Look at what it says in verses 3 through 8. And not only this, we also exalt, there's that word again, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a lot there. That's a mouthful. That is one whole sermon all by itself. But I think for the purpose that I have this morning, which is to get excited about God's uh, declared righteousness of us through faith, we can summarize what's going on in these verses very quickly. It's difficult to imagine the ability to exult in our tribulation. But when we look at that word tribulation in the Greek, it means anything that burdens the spirit. So that goes from very trite things like uh, coming down the 405 freeway to Cornerstone Church today and be cut, in, be cut off by a driver at 90 miles an hour. You know, I'm troubled by that kind of stuff. Or uh, it goes the full gamut to those who are persecuted for the sake of following the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first century, this word would have had a very specific meaning and understanding. They would have interpreted in light of the persecution that they were receiving as Christians. During the first three centuries, to become a Christian meant to expect persecution. Nobody lived in peace with their community. They had peace with God, but they did not have peace in their surroundings. Their surroundings were at odds with them. Anybody who came to Christ in the Roman Empire could expect to die a torturous death. And so here they are thinking, okay, why should I be exulting in persecution? Well, it's because of this declared righteousness that Paul is exalting right here in, in this particular um, section. As a new believer, I was well aware of the persecutions that the first three centuries of Christians had to experience. And I can remember thinking, I wonder if I will be able to hold up with the great confession in light of being physically per uh, persecuted. I, couldn't, I can't stand pain. I don't want to be hurt. I want to avoid it at all costs. And so here I was thinking, how am I going to be able to hold up and maintain my confidence in the work of Christ in the midst of great suffering. Then I started reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you read about the martyrs in the first three to six centuries, you see that their focus was really upon being declared righteous by God and expecting the reward that comes as a result of having to endure the tribulation that they were undergoing. I think at this point in my life, when I travel overseas, I think about one thing. I don't ever want to suffer as an American. I want to suffer as a Christian. I've been followed by the KGB in Belarus and in Russia, and I've had some pressure from each one of those groups. And if I ever am arrested by anyone over in those countries that restrict the expression of Christianity, I want to make it very clear that I don't care about being an American. I do care about being a follower of Jesus Christ and making certain that I am in jail because I believe and have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Are you in that kind of a position right now? I think persecution is coming here in the United States. It's not too far behind. It's time to get a mindset that prepares us to endure persecution uh, when it comes upon us. And the only way to do that, according to what Paul is saying right here, is to exalt in our being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ and His work. Why is this? Because of the gospel. Let's follow Paul's thinking of exaltation encouragement in verses 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Let's follow Paul's thinking in this exaltation for just a minute. When we were helpless, that is, without strength, that is, impotent, without any power. That's what impotent means, without any power. Any power to be accepted by God through our own merits, devoid of declared righteousness before God, therefore ungodly. Christ, it says in verse 6, died for us. But then to highlight that thought, verse 7 comes into view. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Think about what it is to be righteous. A righteous man is one who does things correctly all the time. There are people in our society, much better than me, who like to follow rules. And when they follow rules, they become obnoxious because they turn around and they become judgmental on you for not following the same rules. It's like me driving on the freeway and I'm doing 70 miles an hour on a posted 65, but there's somebody who's 85 going by me and I'm judgmental on them, right? There's a little hypocrisy going on inside of me, but I'm a consistent 75 while he's a sporadic 85 to 90 going down there and I'm finding ways to judge him for what he's doing. But people then would look at me and say, oh, well, he's, he's kind of a, a, a just individual because at least he's consistent in what he's doing and at the same time he's obnoxious. You, you don't sacrifice yourself for somebody who is consistent at doing pretty good. But then he goes on and he says, but maybe for a good man, someone would dare to offer themselves. Goodness is just a little notch lower. This is a person who is benevolent, who is someone who uh, has a little give and take and is more gracious in the way that he deals with somebody who is violating standards out there. Those kind of people you have an affinity for. And you go, yeah, okay, uh, a just person, yeah, he's doing all right all by himself. But this good person over here, he's just like me. He's good and bad like I am. And you know what? Maybe he's a little bit better than me. I'll go ahead and sacrifice myself on his behalf and let him go on living while I sacrifice myself because he'll be a better example in this world. Paul is saying, you know what? Neither one of those are worth sacrificing for. Then he comes into verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here we find God looking at us and saying there's no righteousness, there's no goodness in any of mankind. And in spite of that, I am going to send my son in the midst of all of this to take the punishment that they deserve for their doing wrong even though he doesn't deserve to be considered in the same breath Jesus, that is, with anyone else. You know, we just fail to appreciate and fail to understand the wretched depravity that we're in. 
It's difficult for anyone to sacrifice his own life to benefit somebody better than themselves. One who is just, who gets what he deserves for everything as it should be done, although he might sacrifice his life for someone who is good or one notch below that. You just don't hear people volunteering to take someone else's justly deserved punishment. But this is where Christianity is different. God substituted his son not for those who were just and good, but for those who deserve punishment because they do everything wrong. We're sinners. And, as it says in verse 10, enemies of God. God did not substitute his son to receive a punishment for those who were mostly just and good. His son took the wrath of God for those who deserved his rejection because they were not just or good. We need to be reminded of this because we easily forget. That's why it's important for us to continually look at Romans 5. And being made righteous, when we have that kind of thinking, implies that I am now worthy of Christ's sacrifice. We are never worthy of a sacrifice. But neither are we beggars attempting to earn it. We are the privileged recipients through faith of the declared righteousness that God has to give to us through Jesus' work on the cross. This is why we exult when we experience tribulation, persecution, anything that burdens our spirit or internal man. We are at peace with God now through faith, and we will experience His presence in eternity. That's what verses 9 and 11 are all about. Any present trial is temporary and therefore not eternal. Because eternal torment for the believer has been eliminated because of our declaration of righteousness from God. As we endure our tribulation, the character of our confidence is being de- in being declared righteous is displayed. And that character of our confidence displays our hope. And the kind of joy that is over the top for being declared righteous by God through faith alone. It's fueled by remembering the love of God that has been poured out This is where I think the King James is insufficient. It says shed abroad in our heart. We have been poured out, or as Paul uses the terms in Ephesians 1, we have been lavished with a forgiveness. We are just overflowing with with God's love. And our heart should be exulting in this declaration that has come to us. So the second benefit of exalting or appreciated being declared righteous by God is the patience to endure our heavy burdens that are placed on our spirit through whatever difficulties we have to experience. And this leads to the final benefit of exalting in our justification, which is appreciating our rescue from the wrath of God. This is a follow-up to the second benefit with this difference. In verses 3 through 8, Paul exalts justification as a way to endure present trials out of our control Uh, trials that are out of our control to change. And now in verses 9 through 11, Paul exalts justification to keep his focus on the ultimate goal, which is glorification. Paul builds on the substitutionary work of Jesus in verses 6 through 8 that provides our justification to show us the results of his substitutionary work and ultimately then a future experience, which is our salvation. Look at verse 9. Literally it reads, much more. When we look at that word and look at it in the context, the things that Paul described in verses 6 through 8 are great, but what he describes in verses 9 through 11, he says, are even greater. 
Did you know that believers in this life have not experienced salvation? That may be a shocking statement for any pastor of God's Word or preacher of God's Word to say, but the whole idea in this passage is that we have been declared righteous. We haven't been made righteous. This declaration comes through faith. We're waiting to experience our salvation. Now, let me just take you to another portion of Scripture to reinforce this thought. And this is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And it's interesting to see how Peter describes and opens up the book. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Don't get fooled by that statement in verse 3 that says He's caused us to be born again and think that that is present experience of salvation. Because look at what it says following that. We've been born again, yes, okay, we have new life within us, but everything that we're looking forward to is in the future. It's a living hope that's in the resurrection, but it's for the obtaining of an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. When you think about inheritance, is, is you're thinking uh, that you receive good now even though the person that is going to give it to you when they're dead is still alive? No. To receive an inheritance means that the person who has something to give to you has to be out of the way, can no longer be physically living. Once they are gone, then you get what they have left behind. You know what? We're waiting for our own death in order to receive the inheritance that's been promised to us. And when we look and when you meditate upon 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 5, you should see a parallel going on in the teaching of Paul here in Romans chapter 5. We're born again to a living hope to obtain an inheritance, something that's off in the future, for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. It isn't here yet. We're waiting for it to happen. The result is, while we're waiting for all this to be expressed, we should be rejoicing according to Peter, just as Paul has said. And this is exactly a parallel passage that communicates not only what Paul is saying, but what Peter has been teaching as well. Verse 9 says, we have been saved from the wrath to come, a future event, not a present experience. So much more than having been justified or declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're reconciled now and exalting in the promise that we're going to be experiencing in the future. We're not yet saved. We are reconciled with God, but we're not experiencing that salvation. It's a promised salvation that is yet to be revealed. God's promise is so faithful, though, that because His promise is good, it's like we're experiencing it at this time, but we still have the struggle. It's not until we see Jesus face to face, 1 John 3, 2, that we get to experience all that we're looking forward to in the future. Verse 9 through 11 tells us that we have something to look forward to that the world can only wonder if they will ever obtain. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox salvation is only a hope that the process is going to continue. The Roman Catholics have purgatory. The Eastern Orthodox have a thing called deification. It's a process that begins in this life and it doesn't stop with death. It continues on into eternity and they have no idea where the terminus point is. 
God's word tells us where that terminus is. We're declared righteous right now. We're fit to enter into his presence. And you know what? We should be exalting in that. And because we should be exalting in that, we should be sharing that news with those who are trapped in the process rather than the event. We've experienced the event. We no longer have to go through the process. Now, I need to talk about uh, sanctification, which is Romans 6. And I need to talk about Acts 26.20, which talks about repenting and then expressing the fruits of repentance. But that's not a part of this discussion in Romans 5. That's another message in the future. We're only focused and only concerned about the declaration of righteousness, living in that, having that transforming our thinking, and then expressing that through exaltation to God. Romans 5 tells us of the benefits of being justified. Understanding the benefits helps us to appreciate that what justification means. It means we should be exalting in God's work and enduring in this life. Understanding justification gives us peace with God. That's verse 1 and 2. It promotes patience during trials. That's verses 3 through 8. And it should help us to appreciate our rescue by God from His wrath in verses 9 through 11. Luther and Calvin were correct. Understanding and embracing justification is the hinge upon which all real Christianity turns. Myriads of problems arise when we embrace the wrong definition or foster the wrong thinking. But correcting your thinking is going to change the way not only that you think, but the way that you live. I want to close with just one, two verses. They're found in the book of Galatians. Again, it's the work of Paul. And just so that you understand a little bit of the perspective, Galatians is the first book that Paul wrote. And he summarizes justification by faith alone very well. He expands upon it later on, about seven or eight years later, in the book of Romans. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He's defending justification or being declared righteous by God through faith alone. And he says, if we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, then nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be declared righteous. And then the follow-up verse is found just a few verses later. And I think that's so appropriate, and I love the way he expresses it here in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? I guess the thought that he's giving to us as I close out my message with you, are we being foolish by not resting in the declaration of righteousness that comes from God through faith alone in the work of what Jesus did on the cross? Let's pray. Father, we are so appreciative, not understanding greatly, but wanting to understand more the work that you have accomplished through your son. Thank you for declaring us righteous and thank you for allowing us to cease from earning a righteousness by giving us a righteousness, a declared righteousness that comes through faith alone. We look forward to that expectation of glorification and finally experiencing the salvation that you have provided. Help us now to rest and to understand 
what it means to be declared righteous through faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.